As you saw, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, here, here at the Bridge Church, we, we put a lot of emphasis and really believe strongly in what we, we call discipleship. Uh, discipleship is, uh, is, is a way that you, essentially, you, you grow as a Christian. It's a way that you get involved with one another, you, you take scripture and prayer, you apply it to one another's lives, you point each other back to the gospel, you point each other towards Christ, and, and just encourage one another. Well, a, a couple years ago, when we, when we first launched the church, we, we wrote something called a Life Discipleship Guide. Uh, this was a resource that, that we gave to everybody as uh, just as kind of your go-to resource for starting a discipleship relationship. Uh, well, just recently, we did a rewrite of it, um, and we got those in. Um, and so this is, this is a great resource. If you are in a discipleship relationship, if you are looking to start one, maybe you're, you're in one, you're, you're doing a, a study, you're not really sure what to do. Um, this is, a, this, again, this is kind of your go-to resource for that. Um, it's, a, it's a neat little book. There's six short chapters in it. Um, and then in each, each chapter, um, there's six weeks worth of daily scripture reading. Uh, so again, this is, this is a great little resource for you. Um, this is my only copy at the moment, so you can't have this one. Um, but you can come back next week, and we'll have plenty more uh, if you're looking for something to go through. These are free. Uh, we want you to have one of these um, for you to, to go through that with somebody. Okay, that's what they're designed there for. So if you want to take a look at it, you can come down and take a look at it at the end. Um, but again, don't take it because it's my only one. Right? You have to wait till next week to get one. But, um, so, so the Life Establishment Guide, come back next week and, uh, and get one of those. Um, today, we're, we're going to be looking at a commonly known passage, uh, and, and that's going to be the, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Okay, that's our passage for today, and, and through this passage, what we're going to see, uh, we're, we're going to see the significance of Jesus' baptism and, and its impact on our lives. Specifically, what we're going to walk through, we're going to discuss why Jesus was baptized, and then what exactly happened there at his baptism. Okay, and this is going to be a really shocking story. Let me, a couple months ago, well, about a month or so ago now, I, I can remember sitting in uh, the, the kids' elementary room, uh, which is just a few doors that way. Uh, we, were, we were meeting in there as a staff because the air conditioning was broken, so we had no other room to go to. We're sitting there, and, and every week we start our meetings with just telling like, how, how God's working in the church, what God's doing here in the city. We're sitting there, someone begins to share, we're celebrating, you know, this is awesome, praise God for what's happening, and then this explosion happens. I'm not kidding, it like shook us, like you feel it in your heart, explosion. I mean, Drew is hiding under a table, he's calling 911, I'm not joking, we have no clue what's going on, we're, we're sitting here in amazement, um, so Drew's on the phone with the police, with no, well we look up, and there's people outside that are on the ground, we're like what is happening? Well then you look a little further, and you see the transformer just across the street in, in flames and exploding again and again and again, right? Your heart is pounding, your heart's racing, you're just looking at it, you're like, did that just happen? And then you see some feathers floating in the, in the air, right? There, there was a bird there. Keyword, there was a bird there. Um, it, no, we're sitting here, we're looking at it like, what was that? You know, this massive explosion happened. We're, we're just in amazement. This shocked us to our core. Again, our hearts are racing. We had no clue what's going on uh, until we see the, the, the sparks and we see it explode again and that poor, poor little bird. Well, that shock, that amazement that we felt, that heart racing moment in our lives, that's likely the, the response. That's likely what's going on to the original hearers of Mark's gospel. Right? The original audience of Mark's gospel, they would have been experiencing a little bit of that shock, a little bit of that awe, that heart racing moment. Right? Well, the, the first several verses of Mark, they seem okay. Right? We, we've walked through those already. They seem all right. He's, he's not really saying anything too drastic. I mean, he, he talks about Jesus being the son of God. He uses some countercultural terminology he talks about John the Baptist. We see he's a little odd. He's eating locusts. He's out in the wilderness baptizing people. He's, he's preaching about baptism. He's preaching about repentance of faith. And, and so that would have affected the original hearers. Right? They, they would have probably begun to open their mouth in, in a little shock, a little awe. But it's not, until, it's not until we get to these passages to where their jaws just hit the floor. 
their hearts are racing, right? And someone has to like pick up their jaw and like close their mouth for them. You guys know you see you've seen those those shows. Um, well, the the thing that Mark says in these verses, this would have really shocked. It would have really stunned the original hearers. You see, many of us we've we've heard this story, we've heard this story so many times, we've heard it so much that that we just we aren't affected by it. We're so far removed from the original culture and from the original audience that we miss the shocking details that Mark includes. But what's so shocking? I'm glad that you asked that question. Well, last week we we talked about how God's people had been waiting and waiting for the prophesied Messiah, right? They've, They've been waiting for hundreds of years just for something from God. Remember, there, there were 400 years of silence. 400 years of, of silence. And, and not only that, but they had been waiting for thousands of years from Genesis unto the New Testament for, for the Messiah to come. And then again, 400 years of nothing. And, and I mean nothing from God. No prophecy. No sign. Nothing but silence. For 400 years. The anticipation of the Messiah was great. They were waiting for the triumphant one to appear. They were waiting for their new king to come on the scene. And when this new king is announced by Mark, right? They, they know it's Jesus at this point. Like, Jesus, here he comes. He's, he's the main character. He is this new king. Their, their hearts start to race a little bit. And then what does Mark say in verse 9? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He says that Jesus is from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, at first glance to us, we, we wouldn't think twice about this. Right? Jesus is from Nazareth. Yeah, that's great. We, we knew that. No big deal. Well, one commentator, he says this. He says, the contrast, this contrast between Jesus' divine presence and, and his birthplace, where he's from, could hardly be greater. Reflected in the words of Nathaniel in John 1.46, he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And it's not because it was a particularly wicked place. It was simply unheard of. Never mentioned in the Old Testament nor in those other Jewish sources where you might expect to read of the Messiah's home. Nobody, nobody would have thought that the Messiah would come from a place like Nazareth. Right? It was a no-name town. Nobody ever mentioned it before. Nobody of importance was from there. This, this would not have been the pedigree of the Messiah of God's people. This is not the guy that they were looking for. Nazareth is not the first place, the first thought of birthplace of a king. Right? So so imagine the audience, the hearers of Mark's gospel, their hearts are racing because they know Jesus is coming on the scene, and then he says he's from Nazareth. Huh? Like, the king is from there? That doesn't make sense. Well, why, why would Mark even include that? Right? Why does Mark even include this little bit in the story? Well, for one, Mark includes this information as historical evidence of who Jesus is. Right? This is historical evidence. He's saying that this is a real man from a real place, and you can go back to that place and find out, yeah, Jesus really lived. He was a real human in place and time. So he's pointing back to that. He said, this is a fact Jesus lived. Well, while he is stating facts, he's also stating them in line with what he's just said in the previous eight verses. And what he's doing is he's driving home this point that Jesus is countercultural. Right? He's driving home the point that Jesus is countercultural, that, that this new kingdom that is coming is this upside-down kingdom, so to speak. You see, it goes against everything that we, we would typically think. Right? Like Peter, in, in what we see in the New Testament... The Jewish people were looking for some powerful, some mighty, very valiant king to appear on the scene. Right? They want some good-looking, strong, strapping young dude to come and be their new king. 
they were looking for this political strong arm, someone that could really rescue them from slavery and oppression. And what did they get? They got a carpenter from a no-name town like Nazareth. That, that would have been shocking to them. And that's the first shock of, of, of what we see here in, in Mark's gospel. The second is, is our focus of today, and it's what Mark says in the rest of verse 9. He says that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now again, for those of us who have heard or read this story so many times, the shock and the awe of what happens here in this story has likely worn off. So let me, let me set the stage for you. Okay, everybody, everybody ready? We're going to do a little imagination time. Okay? So you have a guy named John, right? Everybody picturing John in their mind right now? John is wearing camel skin. Okay, everybody got that? John's in camel skin. He's got locust wings stuck in the honey of his teeth. Right, everybody picturing that right now? All right. Now he's standing in the middle of a river. Okay, so here you have John standing in a river with camel skin on him, locust wings and honey stuck to his teeth. And he's proclaiming. And he's, he's speaking about something called repentance. So this guy is sitting in the middle of a river. And he's shouting from the river. And then you see lines of people. Right? You see all these people lined up to hear John's message. And not only to hear John's message, but to go into the water with John go under the water and come back up in celebration. So everybody there, everybody picturing this, this event happening right now? John's proclaiming this baptism of repentance. He's saying that you need to be cleansed. And he's saying not only that you need to be cleansed, but that you can be cleansed. And that the sign or the symbol of that cleansing taking place is baptism. So we're all in line, right? Everybody's in line. Because we need to repent, and because we want to be baptized as a sign of that repentance. And then you look, and you see someone walking toward the banks of the river, and it's Jesus. So here comes Jesus. Here comes the one that John has been talking about, and he gets in line. So now Jesus is in line, but Jesus, again, Jesus is the one that John was talking about when he's proclaiming a greater one is to come. Jesus is the greater one. He is the one who was coming to baptize and immerse you with the Holy Spirit, not just with water. Jesus is the one who will forever remove the stain of sin on your life. Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets have prophesied about. Jesus is the one that God's people have been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years. This is the Holy One. And the Holy One just got in line, not to just hear what John was saying, but the Holy One just got in line to be baptized. This is the Holy One. Is He not already clean? Right? Has that question gone through your mind yet? Isn't he clean? Why is he in the line? Why would Jesus get in line to be baptized? He doesn't need to be in that line. Right? He's already clean. I need to be in that line. Right? We, we would probably all say, yeah, I probably should be in that line. But Jesus? Je Jesus doesn't need to be in the line. Because he's already perfectly righteous and clean. Is, is a little bit of confusion starting to, starting to mess with your head right now? Is, is that shock and all kind of setting in yet? Why would Jesus, the Messiah, why would the Holy One, God in the flesh, why would he need to be baptized? Why would Jesus, the one who came to be known as sinless, Submit to a right directly related to repentance and cleansing. Are you shocked yet? This is a shocking occurrence that is happening before us. Well, let's jump into it. Let's, let's take a look. And, and the main question we're going to focus on 
is why was Jesus baptized? Okay, this is our, this is our main question to ask of this story. Why in the world would Jesus be baptized? See, if I were Mark, or honestly, if you were Mark, we would probably leave out this detail of Jesus' story in his life. This, unless it had some extreme significance for us. Right? This is something that had to have been an issue and a very hard question for the early church to deal with. It's also one that we need to be able to deal with and one that we need to know how to respond to. Okay? So why was Jesus baptized? We're going to see three shocking things unfold as a result of this baptism. Okay? And from the beginning, what we need to understand from the beginning is that Jesus was in line for us. Jesus was in line for you and he was in line for me and he was doing what we should have done so that he could one day stand in our place and take our death. But Jesus did not only die in our place and what we're going to see through this is that he also lived in our place. His whole life was in our place. Okay, so the first shocking thing that unfolds is is what I would call the shocking story. Okay, the shocking story. And to really begin the story, we have to go back to the Old Testament and kind of see what is happening with God's people in his plan. But see, in the Old Testament, you have Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. They are uh, his people. It's It's a whole nation of people. And they had been given this command to worship and obey. Right? And not only that, but they were also commanded to go throughout and to, and to multiply, not just more people, but also righteous believers. So they were tasked with actually going out into the world and to bring other people into this relationship with God. Israel was tasked with being a blessing to the nations, to bring all people of all nations, of all tongues, into a relationship with God. Well, they failed miserably at that, right? And they failed over and over and over again. We see that Israel was given the law. The law pointed out that they had failed. The law pointed out the places in which they were not obedient to God. The law essentially exposed their sin. But they were still God's people. And God still used them as agents of change in the world leading up to the Messiah See, in the baptism of Jesus, this positions him in the story. This positions Jesus in this narrative of Mark as an equivalent to the life of Israel itself. You see, John, just like all the other prophets before him, called Israel to turn from their sin and renew a covenant with God. But what do we see happen? Ironically, we see that Jesus is the one who heeds that call, right? He is the one who comes forward at that summons, and it appears that Mark wants us to see Jesus as being portrayed as true Israel, right? Jesus did not require the forgiveness of his sins associated with baptism. His baptism by John symbolized his association with God's covenant and with the real, true, reconciled Israel, Do you you begin to see what what Jesus is doing? Are you you catching on to the story that is unfolding now? This this is essentially what Israel did. This This is what Israel did. Jesus is baptized in the water, and what we'll see immediately after that baptism, he's driven into the wilderness. Well, think back to Israel's story for just a second. Think back to Israel's story in the Old Testament. What happened? Well, Israel... Israel was enslaved, and then graciously they were freed from that slavery, and where did they go? Well, they went through the water, and through the water into the wilderness, right? They they went through the water into the wilderness, and the 40 days that Jesus spends in the desert, what we're going to see is that's not a coincidence. That actually parallels the story of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, But what we're going to see is that where Israel failed many of their tests and where they continued to stray from God, Jesus stayed true to his call and turned down Satan and sin at every turn. Do you guys see now what Jesus is doing? Do you see this shocking story unfolding before us? 
Jesus is doing the very thing that Israel was supposed to do from the beginning. He is now bringing people to the promised land. Jesus is being the fulfillment to what Israel was but failed at doing. He's bringing all people of all nations, of all tongues, to a new kingdom. Jesus is beginning to tell the story of being the prophesied Messiah. He's taking over the storyline. Where, where Israel and John were, the forerunners, they shrink now into the background and Jesus takes his rightful place as the main focus, as the king of this new kingdom. Which brings me to, to number two. The second shocking thing we see here in the story is a shocking kingdom. Okay, the shocking kingdom. Throughout his ministry, Jesus, Jesus often spoke of the kingdom of God. This is the main central message of Jesus as he went throughout his ministry. This is what he is proclaiming the majority of the time. And in this kingdom, when we think of a kingdom, we think of rule, right? We think of somebody having control over everything. And, and that's true, right? That is God's kingdom. God has sovereign rule over everything. But there's, there's something else about this shocking kingdom and that is not just the sovereign rule of God, but it is also symbolic of God making all things new. Right? The kingdom of this world would one day fully become the kingdom of God as he, so to speak, recreates it. Right? So God is recreating this new kingdom and it will fully become recreated in him. As Revelation 11.15 says, he says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ he will reign forever and ever. See, Jesus is the king of this new kingdom. And in his baptism, this represents the initiation or the inauguration of him beginning to make all things new. Jesus, Jesus even claims to be the kingdom. Right, this new kingdom, again, of, of God recreating, reconciling, redeeming his creation... Jesus says, I am that new kingdom. In Luke 17, he says, the kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom of God is before you. That's because he is the king and he is the kingdom and he is God's agent of reconciliation, redemption, and bringing righteousness to all things, including recreating the earth and making all things new. One, one commentator, he's, he says this about the baptism and the events that happen right after. I love it. He says, when Jesus comes up from the water, he experiences three things that in Jewish tradition signified the inauguration of God's kingdom. He says, the, the heavens opened above him, the spirit descended into him, and the heavenly voice spoke to him. And the concurrence of these momentous events at the baptism signals that Jesus is the more powerful one promised in the Old Testament and the inaugurator of God's kingdom. See, Jesus' baptism designates or, or denotes or, or points him out as God's unique agent in the world. He is, Jesus is the one who will bring about this new kingdom, this catastrophic kingdom that will destroy the old and bring about the new. Jesus is the king of that kingdom, and his baptism is a picture of him going ahead of us. It's a picture of him doing fully what you and I could only do in part. Jesus is doing what Israel failed to do. Jesus is the true blessing of all the nations. There's this new kingdom. There is a new cause. And that cause is redemption for all people of all nations, of all tongues. And the call, again, is to worship Jesus in that. Finally, number three. The, the third shocking occurrence we see is the shocking substitution. The shocking substitution, I'll say it this way again. Jesus in our place. Jesus in our place. Jesus in his baptism was doing not only what you and I could not do, but he was doing what you and I would not do. 
Right? Let, let that sink in for just a second. Jesus in his baptism is not only doing what you and I could not do, but he's doing the very thing that you and I would not, the thing that you and I refused to do. He was being obedient. He was being obedient to the Father's will. He was being obedient to God's call on his life. See, Jesus' baptism was a symbol of obedience. Jesus was showing that he was in full agreement with the Father's plan. We see this obedience and submission by Jesus all throughout the New Testament. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, what's become known as the Lord's Prayer, he even prays, he says, Father, your will be done. Right? Your will be done. In the garden, he says, God, if there is no other way, if this is your will, I will follow it. He didn't seek another way. He said, Father, your will be done. In Philippians, we see, we see that Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. And he was made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. Unto what? What did he humble himself unto? Obedience. Obedience to what? To the point of death. But not just any death. Death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself. He put himself aside. He didn't seek another way, but he submitted to the Father's will. See, Jesus knew the plan. He knew what was before him. He knew that, that a beating beyond any comparison awaited him. And then the cross was after. He knew that was upcoming in his life. He was obedient to it. And he was obedient unto death on that very cross. See, for many of us, we're, we're terrified of that type of obedience. Right? We're, we're afraid of being obedient to God in that way. Right? How many of you are like me and a control freak? Right? How many of you like to be in control of everything? Okay, I am. I am a control freak. Not afraid to say it. I control that. Okay, so I am, I am that kind of control freak, right? And many of us are really just terrified of releasing that control. We, we are so much, we are too much of a, of a control freak that we release and say to God, God, I will go wherever you call me to go and I will do whatever you call me to do. We, that terrifies us to say to God, whatever it is, God, because you don't know what he'll ask. You don't know where he's going to call you. You want to be in control of that. And so oftentimes we don't. We don't say it. But you know, that's, that's one of the, the two things we actually ask you here when you, when you get baptized. We ask you, we ask you two questions. Do you believe Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And do you promise to go and do whatever he calls you to do? There's a reason we ask those questions. Because in your baptism, in your baptism you're demonstrating those two things. You're demonstrating that you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you. And like Jesus, like Jesus, you will be obedient to go and do whatever God calls you to do. But see, the truth is that we all want to be the center of our lives. We all want to have what we think is control. We all really want that. And if you look at your life, if you're honest with yourself, you look back and you're like, yeah, I do want that. When you look at your future and you, you look at your plans, you're like, yeah, I think I have control of that and I want to keep that control. Can I just be honest? This, this is ultimately rebellion against God. That is ultimately rebellion against God. And ultimately, that's why, that's why we have failed relationships. That's why relationships between people, between companies, between countries, and ultimately between God, that's why they fail. That is why these relationships fail. They fail because we're not willing to give up what we think is control. We're not willing to be obedient to God's calling on our lives. We're not willing to live in a self-giving, self-dying way like Jesus. 
we want to hold on to that. Say, no, God, this is mine. But that's rebellion. That is sin. But praise God that he did not leave us in that rebellion. Praise God that he did not leave us there, but he sent Jesus. He sent his son. You see, when, when we look back at the Old Testament, when we continue that storyline, we, we look at the first Adam, the first man. And you know what God said to that, that man, what he said to Adam? He said, Adam, obey me about the tree. To the second Adam, to Jesus, he said the same thing. He said, obey me about the tree, the cross. God said to the first Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live. And he didn't. God said to the second Adam, obey me about the tree and I will crush you. And he did. Jesus was obedient in his baptism. And he was obedient with his life and his death. And he's calling you to follow him in this obedience. And for some of you, for some of you, this calling is a call to faith. It is a call upon your life to set yourself aside, to take the control that you think you have, to die to yourself, to die to your plans and your will, and say, no, I will now follow you, Jesus. I will set myself aside. I will put myself off the throne. I will no longer be the God of my life, but I will worship, obey, and follow you. For those of you that, that have not done that, that is the call to you. Jesus has done every single thing necessary to save you. And he's calling to you to believe, to trust, to repent and confess your sin and to follow after him. For, for others of you, the, the call of obedience to your life is, is just obedience in what we saw Jesus do, and that's baptism. Some of you have been a Christian for a while. Some of you just became Christians. The, the next step of obedience for you is to be baptized. Okay, we're going to be doing baptisms here in about two weeks. Okay, so in two weeks, we'll, we'll have baptisms. If you're interested in that, Please come and talk with us. Um, you can also sign up online um, for that. But, but that's something that, that we, we want for you, again, as a sign of obedience, as a sign of saying, hey, I am following Christ, and you, the family of God, need to know that so you can hold me accountable in that. Some of you, some of you your call to obedience is to follow God's call in your life to go overseas. Right? Some, of you, some of you have been wrestling with this call of God sending you out on a mission. You're like, God, I don't know what that holds for me, so I kind of want to sit here. God is asking you to release control of that and say, trust me, even if that results in death, my name will be glorified. Some of you need to, need to follow God's call and leverage your gifts and talents in your job to build his kingdom instead of your own. Right? To, to take whatever he's given you and to use that to glorify him instead of yourself. Look, I, I get how, how difficult this can be. Right? I, I understand how difficult it is to, to try to be obedient to that and, and this, this, this struggle and this tension there. And I, I, remember, I remember being in college. I was a, a junior. It was the start of the semester. I've been a, a Christian now for about a year and a half, two years. And, you know, in college, even, even if you're not a Christian, the biggest struggle, the biggest question you have is, what the heck am I going to do with my life, right? What, what is my career? What should my major be? Should I change it for the 16th time? Like, where, where am I going? What, um, and for the Christian, you're like, man, what is God's will for me, right? What, what does he want for me? What, what is he calling me to do? And, and so there's this struggle throughout college, and, you know, I was no different. I wrestled with that. Um, for the longest time, I wanted to be a doctor, Right? I love science, I love learning about it, I love uh, medicine and, and really uh, doing that. Sometimes I watch those surgery shows while I'm eating dinner, it's great. Um, but you know, this is, I really did enjoy it, I, I wanted to do it, but the more I reflected on that, the more that I thought about that, the real reason that I wanted to become a doctor wasn't just because I liked it, it was because I wanted the money, right? Doctors make a, a, good, bit of, a good bit of money, and at the time I'm thinking, yeah, money you can buy a lot of things, buy whatever you want. You can buy happiness. You, know, you can do all this stuff with that. And it, God just revealed that in my heart of saying, man, you want to do that for your own gain and not for me. 
And, I, and I'm not saying that being a doctor is, is strictly for your own gain, because I know some of you are, are in that profession and you do an amazing job of leveraging that gift and that talent and that position to glorify God in that. But for me, for me in that moment, that, I wanted that for my own kingdom. I didn't want to do that for God. I wanted to do it for me. And so I wrestled with God that night. I remember being like, no, like, I'm still doing that. He was like, no, you're not doing that. And eventually I lost. Um, but I remember just still having that question like, well, God, then what, what else is there? What do you want for me? And the next morning, I'm not kidding, the next morning, we're sitting in class, and then unannounced, a lady walks through the door, one of the other professors, in the, in the middle of class, okay, she comes in, interrupts the class, and she just does an announcement about science majors who want to teach high school. And in that moment, it was so clear, God said, that's it. That's for you. And I want you to go and do that. And I still wrestled with that. And I still wrestle with that. Um, I eventually did become a teacher. I loved it. I really did enjoy it. But, but regardless, regardless of what it is that God is calling you to, regardless of whether that's a different career, regardless of whether that's going overseas, whatever it is that he's calling you to, he's calling you to be obedient as the example is set by Jesus. Ultimately, when we, when we look at this story, when we look at the story of Jesus being baptized, Jesus was baptized for sinners like us to repent and to find forgiveness in new life. When, when you look at Mark's account and you compare that with Matthew's account and Luke's account, Matthew and Luke actually try to uh, make some sense and shed some light on our question of like, why would Jesus want to be baptized? And you get this, this interaction there between John the Baptist and Jesus and John saying like, no man, I, I, I can't baptize you, you should baptize me. So you get this little interaction and and Jesus says this to John. He says, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to, and this is key here, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says, I'm going to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. See, in Jesus' baptism, he shares the circumstances in which people become aware of their needs precisely in order to meet those needs. Right? And he was going to do that again and again in his ministry and then supremely in his death and resurrection. He was meeting our needs. In this passage, you see the phrase, all righteousness. All righteousness is a reference to God's plan and purpose for Jesus. Part of that plan, part of that plan was the complete identification of Jesus at that moment, at the outset of his ministry. It was an identification moment with man and his sin, right? He was identifying with us and with our sin, and he did that by submitting to baptism. Remember, Jesus is already clean, right? He is the Holy One. He had no sin to confess. He was proclaiming his identity with human nature and human weakness and human sin, He's identifying fully with us in that moment as he began to take that all upon himself. This, this is the beginning of what we call the great exchange that we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The one who knew no sin becoming sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. This is the beginning of that moment. Jesus has already taken on human form, and now he's beginning to take on our weakness and our sin. And he's showing that through his obedience and being baptized. He's identifying with us. He is standing in our place, taking our weakness, taking our sin, which he would eventually fully bear on the cross as redemption and full righteousness is then replaced and given to us. See, this was the beginning of the most humble sacrifice of all time. It was the act of making himself on level with us, sinners. We needed the baptism of repentance, but this perfect man who would never need it himself did it on our behalf. Taking the sign of repentance, performing the act of one who had sinned, Jesus took the first step of being obedient and obedient to the point of death on a cross. 
See, in his baptism, Jesus showed, he showed that he would be the one to bear the weight of sin and guilt that he did not deserve. But he would bear it for the ones, for the ones who had earned every minute of it. In his baptisms, he's saying, I will take that punishment. Even though I don't need it, I will stand in your place and I will take it. He would take upon himself the guilt of God's people. William Lane, he's a a theologian, he says it this way. He says, Jesus associates himself with sinners and ranges himself in the ranks of the guilty not to find salvation for himself, not on account of his own guilt and his flight from the approaching wrath, but because he is at one with the church and he is the bearer of divine mercy. Jesus gets in line He gets in line with the guilty. He puts himself in place of the guilty, not because he himself is guilty, but because he himself is taking on the guilt of his people as he bears divine mercy. Mercy to not give the ones who had earned it the thing that they deserved. Grace. See, here's here's the reality of the story for us. As we imagined... John and the river and the line of people. You probably had yourself in one of two places. Standing on the banks of the river watching it happening. Or in line with the rest of the people. Here's Here's the reality of the story for us. Jesus went to the banks of the Jordan River. And he stood in line in our place. We didn't even know that we needed to be in the line. We were nowhere even close. See, Jesus went with perfect obedience, and it's only through his perfect life in our place that the law is fulfilled. And it's only through Jesus and his perfect life on our behalf and in our place that we find that redemption and reconciliation with the Father. We didn't even know we needed to be in line. But Jesus stood there for us. He stood there in obedience for us. Let's, let's take a look now. Let's shift gears just a little bit and let's, let's finish the story. Let's take a look at verses 10 through 13 as we see what, what actually happened then at the baptism. Mark says that when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. What's great about the first 13 chapters of Mark, Mark is tying everything back to the Old Testament. Right, The first few verses of Mark draw us back to Genesis 1, the beginning, in the beginning. And and we see that Jesus identifies with Israel through his baptism. And here in the occurrences after Jesus' baptism, Mark is bringing us back again to Genesis. I love this about what Mark's doing. He's pointing to the Old Testament as saying, everything that's written here points us forward to Jesus. He's saying all of it is about Jesus. It's all about him. Everything that happens in the Old Testament is pointing to him. See, Mark is taking us through and he's tying, he's tying the original creation in Genesis 1 to the present time. Right? Think about that. The Spirit of God in, in the creation story. Okay, the Spirit of God flutters above the waters like a dove. Okay? So, in Jesus' baptism, the Spirit comes down and flutters as a dove. God speaks to his creation after, spirit, after the Spirit comes down, and so does God speak to Jesus after the Spirit comes down to him. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity participated in the creation of the universe, so too the Trinity participates in the baptism of Jesus. 
this inauguration event of the new kingdom, of this new creation, of the new earth being made. See, like a dove coming back to Noah to initiate a new start, so the Holy Spirit, the the dove, descends upon Jesus to initiate a new beginning. See, if you think about Adam, think about after the whole creation story, Adam and Eve are, are there in the garden, and what happens? Temptation comes. Temptation comes after all of those things take place. And so Jesus, immediately after these things happen, faces temptation. The temptation of Jesus lasts for 40 days. I said this earlier, but that that number, 40 days, that's not a coincidence. There is no coincidence here that it lasts for 40 days. This 40-day temptation actually parallels many of the Old Testament happenings. Let me give you a few. The Old Testament, when God destroyed the earth with water, he caused it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. After Moses killed an Egyptian, he fled to Midian, where he spent 40 years shepherding flocks. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses interceded on Israel's behalf 40 days and 40 nights. The law specified a maximum number of lashes a man could receive for a crime and not die was 40. The Israelite spies took 40 days to spy out Canaan. The Israelites wandered for 40 years. Before Samson's deliverance, Israel served the Philistines for 40 years. Goliath taunted Saul's army 40 days before David came and slayed him. When Elijah fled from Jezebel, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Everything in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. Jesus was in this wilderness for 40 days. Imagine yourself wandering through the desert for 40 days. That would be miserable. And then recall back to Adam. Adam was in paradise. Adam was in paradise. He had maybe like a tropical island resort. And what did Jesus have? Jesus had this desolate desert. So here's Adam in in complete paradise, and he, he he can't keep from sinning. But the good and the better Adam in this terrible, desolate desert doesn't give in to temptation, even in this harsh physical environment, even in direct spiritual assault from Satan himself. He doesn't give in. What's amazing about this story, Jesus identifies with Adam, with Moses, with all of Israel, and then with each each of us. See, in his baptism and in his temptation, Jesus is identifying with all people of all time. But unlike Adam, unlike Moses, unlike Israel, and unlike us, Jesus went willingly into the wilderness. He went willingly into temptation. He went willingly onto the cross, and then he went willingly into the grave to come victoriously out of it. Why are we not shocked by that? Why does that truth not spark excitement and awe within us? Jesus stood in our place. He did what we could not do and he did what we refused to do. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that you and I had deserved, what we earned. He went into our grave, the one that you and I never have to experience. And then he conquered that grave, one that you and I will never be able to conquer. And he did it in our place. He went into the water to identify fully with you, to take upon himself your sin, to take that sin upon the cross, to bear the burden that you could not release yourself of. And he redeemed you. He gave you a reconciliation and redemption that you couldn't get for yourself. And he came up out of that grave and he claimed victory. He claimed victory over it. For those of you who, who've never followed Jesus, hear that truth. Hear what he did in your place. Hear what he did on your behalf. Let that hit you this morning. 
There's a God and He created all things. He said it was good, but His people rebelled. And that rebellion is what we call sin. And every single one of us is guilty of that sin. And the punishment of that sin is death. And we would face that death had Jesus not stood in our place. And he says to those who follow him that you will never face that death. So if you have never turned and followed Jesus, my call to you today, his call to you today is to repent and believe. To put yourself aside. To say, I will no longer be sitting on the throne of my life. I will no longer be the God of my life, but you will. And I will trust and follow you, Jesus. That's what he's calling for you to do. Have you allowed for that shocking substitution to really impact you? Has it settled into your heart? For those of you who have been Christians, who who are Christians, maybe you've been a Christian for 30, 40, 50 years, maybe you've been one for 1 to 10, I don't know. The story of this substitution of Jesus in our place should still shock you. And not just shock you, but, but draw some awe out of you to cause you to worship, and not just worship, but to go and proclaim it. It should stir up something within you. This isn't just something we talk about. This isn't a culture that we become ingrained into. This is real life. This is a real truth. And it is something that can impact the nation's And you have it. Jesus stood in your place. And yet sometimes we sit idly and don't even want to worship Him. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, God the Father tore open the heavens to come to His Son. And at the end of his ministry, God tore the veil to come to us. Let's pray. Father, Father, I thank you for giving us your word. Father, I thank you for not just creating and and leaving, but God for revealing yourself for not just leaving us here in our rebellion but for coming to us Lord we praise you Jesus we thank you for the sacrifice in our place you stood in line for us and then you were obedient you were obedient to taking our sin our punishment our death We worship you for that. It is only because of you, Jesus, that we can be here. Holy Spirit, I ask that you do your work today. I ask that you would speak, that you would call, that you would draw to repentance those who need to repent. I pray that that those who have never seen and tasted of your peace and your joy would, would be able to see that today. Lord Jesus, we, we worship you. We thank you. Amen.